Today's guest is a doctor, an anaesthetist as we know her. She will explain what her job entails and tell us about the chemicals she uses to put us to sleep. Yes. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. The last time a doctor came on this show, we got to talk about healthy eating of the kind that they do in the Mediterranean. That time we had a local GP. This time we meet an anaesthetist, also known as an anesthesiologist who is probably the first and last person you see if ever you go to an operating theatre. Hopefully it's a person that you do get to meet twice, otherwise something surely up. Now, what an anaesthetist does is something I've certainly wondered about. Until I met today's guest, she is Dr Jessica Kentish. Dr Jess, as I'll call her, currently practices in hospitals in the city of Denver, Colorado. While you'll hear a very U.S. voice, Dr. Jess is British by birth and she was brought up and educated in the United States. I caught up with her when she was visiting Cambridge with her fiancé. I wondered what she did for a living. And welcome to the studio, Dr. Jess. Hello. I am an anesthesiologist. And what do they do? Anesthesiologists are trained to care for patients undergoing a surgical procedure, meaning I assist you in achieving a level of unconsciousness where you are unaware of events taking place and do not experience the discomfort associated with the procedure, and I wake you up when the procedure's finished. It's a nice, clear picture. So a whole doctor is devoted to making me go out and making me come back. Why does your knowledge need to be wider than just giving me a little jab to make me sleep? The anesthesiologist plays an important role in the operating room. It's much like um, an internist and in combination with a surgeon managing care of the patient during a procedure. And so as the anesthesiologist responsible for a patient's care during, say, a hernia operation, I am responsible for helping you go to sleep in a comfortable way And then when you're in a deep sleep, you often forget to breathe. And so I instrument your airway, put a breathing tube into your trachea, which I can then connect to a ventilator that administers the appropriate tidal volume at the necessary rate and administers the anesthetic gases that will keep you asleep for the duration of the procedure. And then when it's no longer necessary for you to be asleep, I need to wake you up and make sure that you are breathing appropriately, that your heart is at a reasonable rate, your blood pressure is adequate, that you aren't experiencing any pain. And so I need to have an understanding of the nature of the surgical procedure, a strong understanding of uh, human physiology, pharmacology, and then it helps if I have a nice voice wake you up at the end of it. And what's the classic thing to say to me as I wake up? I'll often uh, wish you a good morning, much like your mother did, in an attempt to get you off and ready for school. Do you ever say, hello, my name is Angelina Jolie? <laughs> you were great. No, but when you are going to sleep, I try to help you pick out a nice little dream that I'm hoping will stay with you for the duration of the procedure. Do things ever get more complicated? So, for example, you're doing some heart surgery. Things, you need to operate on a heart and do different things to the heart. 
Oh, absolutely. Complications may occur during a complicated cardiac procedure, um, and complications may occur during the most uh, mundane removal of a gallbladder. The issue can arise with the patient. Maybe the patient is having an adverse reaction to a medication, or perhaps the patient has underlying cardiac, pulmonary, liver disease that is compromising their ability to metabolize general anesthesia, and they need to be supported appropriately. How, for example, do you manage to take a bit of the body, work on it, rewire a heart? Surely the heart's going to be beating. Well, it's interesting that you'd ask that. We've come a long way in the field of anesthesiology. Initially, we just found a way to knock you out, so to speak, achieve a general state of unconsciousness that would allow a surgeon to operate on any part of the body. And then as we advanced in the field, we learned how to isolate, for example, the heart with cardiopulmonary bypass, the lungs with, again, cardiopulmonary bypass. And so in that instance, a perfusionist, an individual who is trained in the art of bypass medicine using equipment that will add oxygen to the blood and extract the metabolized byproduct carbon dioxide, thus allowing you to bypass the heart and the lungs during a procedure that would require them to be in a still immobilized place. And then some of the more routine procedures that we do in knee replacement, for example, Uh we can identify the nerves that supply the knee we can administer numbing medicine, you know, local anesthetic in the same way that you receive at the dentist to isolate the pain fibers in the knee. And in theory, you, you could simply have a localized anesthetic in the knee. Oh. And the same applies to other areas of the body. Now, I imagine that in your, where you work, you've got a cupboard with a whole bunch of chemistry in it. I have a massive anesthesia machine that allows me to ventilate a patient and administer volatile anesthetics with each breath. That's quite useful. And then I have a massive cart filled with all sorts of little tools and devices. And then, of course, the agents that we use to um, establish uh, anesthesia, analgesia in a patient. So, So narcotics, benzodiazepines induction agents like propofol, Tomidate that we use to help a patient achieve unconsciousness, uh, medications that we use to achieve an immobile state, otherwise referred to as paralytics. And then, of course, we have agents that we need to use to reverse all of those if necessary. And any device that you might imagine that would be necessary for any type of emergency, whether you're doing surgery on a toe or on the heart, we always have the same equipment and tools ready and prepared uh, to take care of any adverse events that may come up. My curiosity says, I'm asleep. Could I be asleep and in pain? Yes. As the field of anesthesiology has progressed, we are now able to monitor not only your heart rate or your blood pressure or your oxygen saturation or your breathing rate. We can also monitor your brainwave activity, which is what allows us to determine how deep you are in terms of a plane of anesthesia. And it gives us an indication of whether or not you may not have received adequate anesthesia. It also allows us to determine whether you've been stimulated by something in the surgical procedure. 
you may be experiencing pain and I can I either see that your heart rate has gone up, your blood pressure, your breathing rate, or that your brainwave activity has increased. And we then administer pain medicine. We titrate it to an effect, meaning a lower heart rate, um, lower brainwave activity. A bit like uh, analogous to me going out at the dentist. I'm giving you some feedback, but you've now got yes. me asleep and you can now see my brain going out. Exactly. You aren't able to communicate to me verbally, but you are able to give me lots of cues indicating that if you were becoming more awake or uncomfortable in any way, I can detect it. And I do, and I then treat accordingly. Now, I know you're here under oath, but can you tell us any gentle secrets about how people behave when they're under? Oh, it's brilliant. It's much like when you go to the pub and you've had a few too many, and you become a little disinhibited. And so people often make very nice, they're they're often very bright, bubbly, loving comments as they're going to sleep. And then often, as people are waking up, they'll describe the uh, interesting dreams that they may have had. You're being very candid here. (laughs) Well, do you have that phrase here in England that we use in America? Have you heard of Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. where people go and engage in incredible debauchery? Mm -hmm. And we always say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Mm -hmm. while what happens in the operating room stays in the operating room. Okay, I'm really pleased for that. Yes. My my understanding of an anesthetic is laughing gas. Oh, yes. Nitrous. Still used? Um, at the dentist, you might find some, some nitrous. It alters your perception of the events taking place around you. It allows you to giggle a little bit. Interestingly enough, I practice in Denver, Colorado. The elevation is 5,280 feet, so a mile above sea level. And nitrous does not work at that elevation. And so we do not use it. We use other agents. We use volatile anesthetics that are all very similar in nature, but have been modified somewhat to maintain certain properties. So some of them come on very quickly and subsequently will expire very quickly. Some of them are very good at maintaining a deep anesthesia. Some of them are more useful for shorter procedures where we'd like you to maintain a more modified depth of anesthesia. Okay. Do you have any clue how the nitrous oxide works? Why does chloroform work? Why does anything work to send me asleep? Well, it's an interesting question. We've actually never determined how it is that the volatile anesthetics actually achieve the state of general anesthesia or unconsciousness. Um, We do know that GABA receptors are involved and that modulation of these GABA receptors is what will allow one to achieve a state of unconsciousness. And so the assumption has been that the volatile anesthetics will act on those receptors in such a way as to achieve the desired effect. The issue with nitrous not working at one mile above sea level is that, as you know, when you climb Mount Everest and uh, the oxygen levels decrease with each step, each climb, it is very difficult at a higher altitude to achieve a more concentrated amount of the volatile anesthetic. And so it it is somewhat dilute. And in being dilute, I would have to administer much, much, much more in an effort to achieve the desired effect. And it becomes less useful. Okay. What are the parameters of a good 
send you to sleep anesthetic. What is your ideal stuff? My goal with each individual case is to assess the medical history of the patient in an effort to determine if there may be any variables that could impact their response to anesthesia. And that may be disease in their brain, their heart, their lungs, kidney, liver, that type of thing. And so I need to know exactly um, what medical conditions the patient is currently being treated for, what medications they're taking, whether or not they've ever had surgery in the past, and if they've ever had an adverse reaction to the anesthetic agents that were administered at that time. And so from the very beginning, I need to know everything about the patient. And then I use generally the same agents for each patient, but I use varying amounts depending on the effect that I'm trying to achieve. And so I titrate to effect, so to speak. I, I give a little bit, I monitor the effect, and then I give a little bit more. My goal is to achieve a state of anesthesia where the patient is essentially unconscious, not moving, not aware of anything taking place. And then my goal is also to achieve adequate analgesia, meaning adequate pain relief. Even though th you're asleep, I, mm -hmm. as we've discussed, yes. I, can, I know if you're experiencing pain, and it's my goal to avoid that, to prevent it, to treat it, and again, to titrate pain medications to an effect. And my goal is to keep the patient safe throughout the procedure, to monitor every aspect of their care. And then once the surgical procedure is done, and I've turned everything off. I'm hoping to wake the patient up and to help them resume their awake state of normal breathing and heart rate and respiratory rate. And then I want you to wake up and tell me you had a really nice dream. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you, Jess. But I have one last question. My granny had a view on medicine. I learned somewhere that taking an aspirin after you've had a heavy night drinking and an aspirin and a glass of water would be a good way of putting off tomorrow's hangover. But Granny would have said that if you take an aspirin without a headache, the aspirin doesn't know where to go and therefore do you bad. Well, not that I would ever disagree with your grandmother, uh -huh. of course. Of course. That being said, these medications target certain receptors and hormones, and they initiate a molecular response regardless of whether or not that response is needed. Which pretty much answers it. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy your trip in England. Thank you very much. I will. Thank you, Dr. Jessica Kentish. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>